Hello listeners and welcome to the very first British Academy of Jewelry podcast. I'm Sophie Boons, a jewelry designer maker, craft council research fellow and educator at the British Academy of Jewelry. As you are all aware, BAJ has had to close its jewelry studios whilst the country is faced with the coronavirus pandemic. Now that most of us are forced to break our routines, we've been looking at ways in which we can share discussions around alternative ways in which jurors can continue working. And what better time than now to do so through a series of podcasts, where I invite esteemed guests to cover a range of topics that can provide new insights for anyone in the jury field navigating this admittedly difficult time. To discuss the first topic of this lockdown series, working away from home, continuing your jewelry practice virtually with a broken supply chain, I have invited Jack Meyer and Stephen Barnett to kickstart the conversation. Welcome, Jack and Stephen. Even though I'm confident most of the audience listening will know who both of you are, please can I ask each of you to tell us a little bit about yourselves and what you do? Jack, would you like to start? Well, hello everyone. I'm Jack Meyer. I'm senior CAD tutor here at the British Academy of Jewelry. I also am a moderator for a blog called CADJewelrySkills.com. I provide advisory and information on jewelry technology relating to how jewelry is designed, made, and sold. I've actually been working with CAD since about 2004 for jewelry, but I've been actually working with computer graphics for a lot longer, since about the late 1980s. Before I ever trained as a jeweler, I worked for as a military contractor on flight simulators. Stephen, over to you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself also? Hi, my name is Stephen Barnett. I'm the subject lead for CAD for the British Academy of Jewelry. I teach CAD there. I also teach in the workshop. Uh, I began mainly as a workshop jeweler. I began as a bench jeweler and worked on the bench for probably about 11 years. During that time, I started doing evening classes in CAD and building up skills in CAD. And yeah, that's kind of led me to where I am now. It is very clear you are both considered experts in digital technologies. Can you both shed some light on what has drawn you to digital technologies within the jewelry field? Well, I was kind of born into it. See, when I was a kid, my mother was one of the first people to ever get a degree in uh, computer graphics and uh, an MFA, a man, uh, Master in Fine Arts, because at the time I was like six. So uh, she, I was in the art department. She uh, didn't want me running around tearing things down. So she would set me in front of, uh, of a television screen with demo reels. These were old VHS cassettes of uh, computer graphics uh, video demos and portfolios uh, from mass other master students and also from industry professionals. So I was watching like the early era of computer graphics, uh, like the sort of stuff they were doing for like movies like say, Young Sherlock Holmes, Last Starfighter, that sort of era. And uh, I mean, I, and I absolutely fell in love with the computer art just instantly like that. Uh, they also had me play on one of the first Macs. The video and uh, like uh, 2D editing tools on those were just uh, so much fun that uh, it, it, was, it was kind of a foregone conclusion what I'd be doing in my life. Wonderful, Jack, thank you very much. Stephen, you gained an interest in digital technologies later on in your career. You were a jeweler first. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I think I had exactly the opposite experience from Jack. My parents, complete technophobes, still are. They still don't have a VHS, that's future technology for them. Um, and I wasn't, I've never been a computer person at any point really, but I was working as a bench jeweler, I've been working at the place I worked for quite a long time. 
I just I need to get ahead. I need to find a way to become specialized, become, you know, something to get me ahead of everyone else. So I started teaching myself stone setting in the evenings, started doing evening courses in CAD. And basically just trying to find ways of setting myself apart from everyone else and being able to do things that would make me more valuable to the company initially and in the long term enable me to sell on my own. At the same time, I became very, very interested in teaching. I started teaching evening classes and the three things kind of all pulled together in the end. So I ended up finding a job as a CAD teacher in a jewellery school and that was kind of my perfect career opportunity and luckily I got the job and here I am. So Stephen, you did not grow up with digital technologies all around you. Do you feel that was a barrier for you to access the skills? No, no. It's, um, I think you can almost come at it in two directions. You can either come from the point of view of being someone who's quite computer savvy, who then wants to make jewellery and uses those skills they already have to enable them to make jewellery, or like in the opposite direction, be someone who knows how to make jewellery and wants to make jewellery, but then wants to basically get another toolbox there's you know there's only so much you can do with your hands in the workshop having CAD is just like having another brand new toolbox with loads of tools that enables you to do things that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise and also to improve and attempt the things you would do in the workshop in a completely different a new way and it's interesting Stephen saying that because uh we are very much coming from opposite directions. Uh, Steven started, as, a, as, as he says, as a bench jeweler until uh, he trained with me to learn the, the CAD stuff. Uh, I started uh, in, in CAD and various sorts and all that computer graphics until I trained as a traditional bench jeweler. Uh, and, and so it's, it is possible to, I mean, just like with the jewelry industry itself, some people start in the jewelry industry, some people end up in the jewelry industry. And uh, I mean, the, the use of CAD technology is no different. As a matter of fact, you could pretty much look at it like just any other tool for that regard. It's just the difference there is that the tool is perhaps younger than some of the other tools we use at our bench. And so therefore, the specialists tend to be a little younger. And I think also just don't be put off. If you're interested in getting into CAD and you don't think you're a computery person or the sort of person who uses computers, don't let that intimidate you. It's not being able to make things is as important, if not more important. Learning to push the buttons and make things happen in CAD that you want to happen, you can learn. Having the skills at the bench, actually, if you don't have those, you need to have those to be make. If you want to make jewelry in CAD, you need to be able to make jewelry at the bench. I think that's vital. You have to have one without the other. Although the other way around, you know, you can make jewelry at the bench without being able to get, have any CAD knowledge at all, but. If you want to get into making things in CAD, learn to make things at the bench as well. And don't be intimidated by not being particularly computery. As long as you understand how to make things. The main thing I always find is actually the making process. If I ever get stuck in camping, I don't know how to do this. I think, how would I make this in the workshop? What is the order I would do things in? What's the sequence of events that would need to happen? How would I manipulate those materials? The often, the exact same thing applies in CAD. I make things the same way in CAD. I do in the workshop I don't know maybe Jack doesn't maybe because Jack's not so coming from a workshop point of view he thinks differently no actually not at all actually we, we approach things exactly the same way in that I mean the thing when you're actually making things on a computer it's just like with any type of product design you have to think about the end goal while you're working otherwise you're basically just making pretty pictures I mean that's what makes uh, working with CAD especially in jewelry so grounded and why where the, this method working is so important as a matter of fact, they differ from most other CAD tutors, or we differ from most other CAD tutors, in that we believe that you have to have that bench experience before you ever get to CAD. 
it's a great mistake too many salespeople make. They, they basically, I'm just showing you all the tools. What you do with them is your issue. No, you need to approach it with as a problem. It's not a list of recipes. It's a problem solving set of tools. And you need to actually teach people those problem solving skills. That's what you're learning at the bench. Jewelers call it wherewithal. The analogy I always use, Jack, to hit on it there, is actually if you can't, if you try and come to CAD without learning how to make jewelry first, it's like writing a recipe book without learning how to cook first. I agree. There is another preconception that to, in order to work with computer-aided design programs, you'd need a very substantial amount of mathematical knowledge. Would you agree? And do you feel that is a barrier for people to access the programs and use the programs? So when they say that CAD is based on math program, they're right. But the thing you got to remember is there's something they talk about in computer programming called abstraction, which is like the further we get or the, the more evolved the tool is, the more abstracted, the more simplified it's become from its original source. And yes, there's a lot of geometry in CAD. There's a lot of mathematics in CAD, but we're at a, we're at a stage now, and we've been at that stage for decades, where the tools are so evolved that you're actually, it's more of a art tool. It's more of a creative or a sculpting tool than it is a mathematical tool. Now, that's not true of all CAD programs, but it's certainly true of the ones we use for jewelry. I think a good reflection on that is to look at it the other way. When I teach in the workshop, and my students all tell me that I drive them crazy with this, basically for every project, the first half of the day is working out equations on the board. I work out the volumes of metal we need, the equations we need to work out, the length of metal we need to build a ring. I get them to work out the exact weight of metal they're going to need for what they're going to make, the volume they're going to need, how to work out the amount of six by six square stock they need to roll it out to that correct volume. So the first half of the day is maths. When I worked in a workshop, I never used any maths. I just guessed. I looked at it, that looks about right, that'll be enough, made it, it works. My partner Sarah is in the shed now doing exactly the same thing. She just cuts off a bit of metal, rolls it out and it works because experience gives you that you know, ability to do that. But when you're learning, you should learn how to do the maths first, but the maths becomes subliminal. And the same with CAD. There is obviously a lot of maths and geometry going on, but instead of you having to think it all, the computer's basically doing all the thinking for you and you're just, well, you're just being creative, really. But there's also, there is a lot of engineering. It's like if you, if you get a, if you do an apprenticeship in jewelry in Australia, the apprenticeship you actually get is in engineering. So you have to remember that within jewelry making, there is maths, there is engineering, there is science, there is mythology. All these things exist. But for most bench jewelers working in high street jewelry shops, they're probably not even aware that they're experts in all these things. It's just subliminally comes into what you're doing. And you need to know these things to be able to do what you do. The math we're talking about is actually jewelry math. It's not CAD math. Because people forget just how much math is involved in everything. I mean, you can't be a waitress without using math. If we want to do an eternity ring properly, we need a lot of math. If we want to be able to do uh, a stone setting properly, we need a lot of math. If you're going to make anything, whether you're making in CAD or you're making it into the workshop, you need, to, you need to understand how things are made. You ought to be able to understand how things are made. You need to understand the tolerances you can get away with. You need to understand what materials do and how they work. And the maths and the science is intrinsic within that. It's, it's unavoidable. But a lot of it's intuitive. When we say make it subliminal, it's like we understand just by measuring and feeling. And that's the, I think that's maybe the biggest difference or the, the biggest difference I've had over the years. I've been teaching jewelry cat for about 14 years now. Uh, that when I have professional jewelers been working for a long time, when they move in the CAD, they discover very much the hard way that 
they're so used to thinking in terms of just physically feeling the materials and physically just finessing and working with the, the sort of visual equivalence of these numbers, but actually have to sort of talk of these numbers now, not everyone's used to that. They know the numbers by heart, but they don't actually specifically know the numbers like written down and they're not used to the sort of the, the actual written math side, even though they're used to thinking in terms of physical measurement. And that it takes a little while to kind of shake out of that, but most people get there pretty quickly. As a matter of fact, the best CAD users are nearly always the people who've actually has a, a, a substantial amount of bench experience already. I would personally agree. To move on to the main reason why I wanted to invite you to on a podcast today, we are all currently on lockdown in what is admittedly a really strange time. Faced with an extraordinary new reality, we cannot go to work. Most of us don't have access to a jewelry bench. Most of our supply chain is broken down. How do we keep moving? How do we keep our businesses going? How do we keep fired? Do you have any thoughts on this, Jack and Stephen? In order to be able to solve the problem, we have to identify the problem. So we approach it from a problem-solving perspective. We don't have our supply chain. We don't have the tools we need. Uh, but we do have a few things which we have at home. And one thing we do have at home is a computer. One thing we do have at home, well, if you're listening to this, you probably have internet. And so between those two things, that actually, well, that pretty much keeps us in, in connection with the rest of the world. And a large portion of what happens with uh, jewelry retail is connection and communication anyway. So at the very least, the aspects of communication with the outside world that, that revolve around your business, such as marketing, social media, and, and, and direct correspondence with clients, these can continue on unabated. As a matter of fact, you probably have more time than you ever did because uh, you don't have to worry about everything else because it, it's simply shut down. But having said that as well, you also have a free hand for some other opportunities. And one of the things I write about in my blog is ways of virtually interacting with, with, with the market itself. And one, th one thing that's very much changed in the past, say, 15 years is the rise of bespoke jewelry using CAD CAM in the process. So as a matter of fact, I heard a statistic for a couple of years ago that 99% of all bespoke design involves CAD at some stage in the process. So bringing CAD into your home, and actually every everyone I know, every one of my former students who uses CAD at home, some have actually emailed me and said, thank God for CAD, because they, they can actually continue not only to develop work for customers, but they can also develop virtual stock that they can actually show on their website with rendering. So they, they don't necessarily actually have to have physical pieces to photograph them. They can just make the model, make it right, and actually photograph it before it even exists. It's not as, as ideal as actually having a full stock produced, but there are a, quite a lot of jewelers out there that have been doing just that for quite a while already. I think also, yeah, with the whole lockdown thing and the being shut in, I see it as a massive opportunity. There's so many things. I've got a list of things I've been wanting to do for months and months and months I don't get around to. Suddenly I'm trapped at home and I can do them. So like already I've designed, I've well designed and built in CAD an engagement ring for my cousin. I'm the whole, we're teaching from home at the moment a lot of the time. So I'm massively upgrading my knowledge on how to teach remotely, how to use the sort of technology we're using now to teach remotely. So that's been a huge learning curve. It's very interesting. And my partner's also a jeweler, but she's not a CAD person. She's downstairs teaching herself marketing on the internet. She's in the shed teaching her new self new skills, how to make your halo now, which I've done before. So depending on what you've got at home, and we were 
pretty much between us. We've got a workshop, we've got a computer, we've got access to the internet. We can still communicate, or I can still communicate with clients. It's perfectly easy through the phone, through emails, whatever, to communicate with clients, to send them CAD models. One of the beautiful things this chat was saying about a CAD model is once you've built it, it's not a 2D picture. It's a three-dimensional model. That's a finished piece. You've actually made it at that point. You can send that as an STL file to your customer. Most computers have 3D print on them now. Sorry, 3D paint. So they could open that, they can revolve it, they can look at it from all angles. So you might not be able to actually get things cast very easily at the moment due to a lockdown, but you can get everything certainly up to that point. You can get it okay. You can hopefully even get money still rolling in because you can still get paid for the amount of work you have done. So it's, you know, there's an awful lot of benefits, not only to CAD, but there's a lot of benefits to the lockdown. It actually gives you that chance to do that CPD and to teach yourself. And if you want to get into marketing, if you want to start using Instagram, Facebook, whatever else, social media to get yourself out there or build a new website, you know, these, this is a perfect opportunity where you can't be in your workshop to actually do it. I totally agree. To add to that, one thing that, so keep money rolling in, if you're working with CAD and you don't, and you can't actually create that final step of the process, there are still a handful of 3D printers still working uh, across the country and across the world. And there is something called the 3D modeling marketplace, where you actually have this online community where people can submit 3D models and people can buy those models and get them printed on demand. Shapeways and iMaterializer are two examples of this, but people are actually making money just selling 3D models. Uh, to that other people can get printed so you could that's that so finding other additional ways of actually getting your work out to market now that you have free time on your hands this is one viable way of actually moving your business forward and actually have a look at you know because a lot of casts a lot of people use the big casting companies which have had to shut down to have multiple employees but the smaller companies which are just independents and probably people who we should be supporting anyway, this is a perfect opportunity to support them because they are independent, they are on their own, they can carry on working and casting and printing and so on. It's a great opportunity to actually support those small businesses. Absolutely. So do you think this will lead to a significant change in the industry? It already has, to, to put it bluntly, uh, it's already changed. I've had a lot of conversations with friends and family and colleagues over the past couple of weeks. I've actually been in lockdown now for 19 days because I got sick a little early. It wasn't COVID or anything. It was just tonsillitis, it turns out. Yeah, I mean, people asking, well, I wonder if this is going to change the world. Well, it kind of already has. I mean, there's, there's several ways to think about in terms of technology. Everybody I know, even the, even the most technophobic among us, is being forced into technology. Every company I know is being forced into technology, is being forced into online ways of working. Even movie theaters, I mean, like I saw my first advert today announcing the, the release of a new movie onto streaming this Friday. It's gonna be launched on demand on the, like Now TV and things like that. For example, we were on the cusp already of a paradigm of a way of working where everything was completely virtual, where, where geography no longer mattered in terms of dealing with people. And this worldwide pandemic has forced that last, it kind of pushed us off that, uh, that, that cliff and kind of forced us over that edge a bit to where now uh, a lot of these things that we were suspecting weren't gonna be happening soon are now very much a living working reality. We're having a conversation now across, uh, I mean, all of us are in different cities right now. Uh, I'm gonna be having a party next Friday across four countries. And it's geography is no longer a concern with this new way of working. And that's, that's something we were kind of heading towards, but now we're kind of forced into this new reality and it's, it, 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 it's, it's more interesting that that's the next question is like, what is this going to do to way, people's way of thinking? And that's what I'm curious to see. 
I think it's really interesting. I think it's changed not just you know the jury industry, it's changed probably people's perception of society and what's important in society. It's certainly changing people's perception of who's important in society, like the the nurses, the delivery men, the guy behind the counter in Sainsbury's, who perhaps weren't the most important people two weeks ago, suddenly become the most important people in our society. And that's a hugely, I guess, a wonderful, beautiful thing, you know. We seem to be able to suddenly solve homelessness, which we haven't been able to do before. So there's a lot of things happening in society, which is quite incredible. And I think also there's always something kind of a little bit intimidating, especially in the jewelry industry, in the kind of I have to have a shop, I have to have lots of money to invest in stock. And you kind of feel like it's only for the big boys and you can't get involved. But one of the beautiful things about being locked in and having to sort of figure out how to do it, how to use social media, how to be able to for me and Jack teach online and being able to use CAD and be able to do everything. It's not quite sort of punk rock about it. You can kind of just do it. You know, you've got everything there on the internet. You can download a free trial of Rhino or whatever you want. You can teach yourself. You, can, you know, you can actually use this as a massive opportunity to just claim what you want to do for yourself rather than, you know, having to wait for a situation where you feel it's viable for you to do it. I think you've got to just sort of actually just Take this opportunity for what it is. Teach yourself. Go online. Find out what you need to know and what you want to know, and use it to your own advantage. To add on to that, I'll actually make a a page with some uh, further reading links and some download sites for. Uh, you mentioned Rhino 3D's demo. I'll put it on uh, CAD Jewelry Skills as a further reading, and uh, we'll include a link with this uh, when this thing gets released. There's several softwares you could download for free to, to actually get playing with this stuff tomorrow. And uh, not only that, but there's a lot of places we can learn. You could learn from us. Uh, we teach online. You could learn from video tutorials, or you can even like pay for like a course, like smaller or larger institutions. Uh, so th they're really the the only excuse is what? How much time do you got? Learning a software can be daunting and challenging. Do you both have any advice for anyone wanting to start this journey? New programs are released very often. Have you recently had to learn a new program yourself that can inspire some advice for listeners, particularly for those who perhaps have not got any experience in CAD? Well, kind of learning Matrix Gold at the moment because we've got, we've had Matrix for a long, long time, but we've, Matrix Gold came out, when did it come out, Jack, a couple of months ago? Last July. Last July, or we've been playing it for a couple of months. Well, I've only had it for a couple of months anyway. So, well, nobody was moving on it for the first two or three months. That's what happens when any new software is launched. It's very rare everyone jumps on it. They they kind of sort of poke it tentatively before they uh, commit to any even a demo. But um, so I've been teaching myself that and sort of going through to GenVision and utilizing the videos they have there and the information they have there for teaching you. So there's always sorts you can do. And even within these programs, it doesn't matter how much you've used them, there's always more. There's always, you know, there's so much depth to them. And they kind of, I always show the students, like if you type into the command bar S, you'll have all the commands that start for S. And there's hundreds just starting with the letter S. And because they're generational, every time they build on them, they tend to keep everything that's always been there before. So they get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's more and more in there. So there's sort of an infinite amount of further training you can do within one program, but then also they will tie into each other, like being able to use Rhino certainly helps you a lot when you come to use Matrix. And then if you want to use Illustrator, they will have their purpose and they will have their place, depending on what you want to use them for. Or Photoshop, if you want to just make some really nice images to go onto a website. So, you know, I'm 
kind of planning myself. I've got, I'm busy and I've ever been in lockdown, but I've, I've got like three or four programs I want to learn. I want to teach myself in the workshop. I might even try and do some drawing for the first time for a long time. To add on to what he's saying, that's the thing about uh, learning, especially uh, and effectively now, I actually ended up spending a couple of years examining all the different ways you could possibly learn via digital means or even by physical means. So I actually went to uh, short courses and long courses, both virtual and physical. I did online training. I did, I did, I did video tutorials. I did purchased courses, which include like written content as well as video tutorials. I actually wrote an article about this. It's frequently asked questions, page 13 on my blog. They sort of compare the advantages and disadvantages of the different ways of learning. The reason why there are all these different ways is because different ways suit different people's schedules or their self-discipline or the, the way they work. I mean, some of it, the, uh, like if you're going to do video tutorials, it's great and it's cheap, but it requires a tremendous amount of self-discipline because you need to sort of buckle yourself down to do it. And uh, the biggest enemy of people buying a course that they're, that's, meant, that's intended to be self-taught entirely is it's entirely dependent on yourself which has, I mean, I, I've seen a lot of people do this. They'll pay like a grand for a, uh, a, for a course and uh, it'll just sit there gathering dust in their inbox. And uh, they might've looked at it twice and looked at some of the videos twice and then discovered this just takes too much time. But on the flip side of it, actually doing like a, like a face-to-face -face or virtual course, even via Skype or Zoom, we can cover in half a day what you might, act, what might take you actually weeks to do on your own because we actually show you where to go and what to look for. It is more expensive, but the efficiency of time, the, the efficiency is staggering. And it can be tailored as well. I mean, the big problem always with videos, whenever I've spoken to any students, whether it's in the workshop or in GAD, who've tried to learn from videos, is they always just say, I can't ask you questions. As soon as you get stuck or you don't understand the information, you tend to get stuck. So if you can put yourself in a situation where you're being taught by someone, whether that's in a classroom or online or one-to-one tutoring, tutoring that's always going to be the preference and i think I've, re I've read jack's article and i think he actually worked out that learning from videos you kind of double your speed of learning as soon as you go into classroom and then as soon as you go to one-to-one -one teaching you sort of double your speed of learning again which makes perfect sense really yeah and it seems to be borne out by about a decade and a half of seeing students pass through these classrooms just on the short courses alone through the academy i've seen somewhere around like 700 odd students pass through our CAD classes. But it's, it, there have been a lot of people that have learned CAD with us uh, over, over the years. Patterns start to emerge in terms of how people learn both online and offline. And it's sort of interesting to see kind of how those patterns pattern out. One interesting thing that's worth sort of adding on to what we're talking about here is the best students had in common, not their intelligence or their talent, but their desire. And I've had students had proper learning disabilities and actually just slow learners and technophobes of computer, they still got there in the end just because of the sheer bloody mindedness. And I think that's what it is. It's like, if you have the attitude for it, if you want it bad enough, you will get it. And also I think to a certain extent, that's deciding what software you want as well. If you want to work making traditional kinds of jewelry, then perhaps Rectrix or Rhino are far more for you. But if you're into very, very sculptural stuff and you naturally want to wax carve, then perhaps you'd head more towards ZBrush or something like that. Now I think, think about what you want to make, how you want to make it without a computer would perhaps lead you to which program you'd start learning once you come to use as a computer. Yes. And one of the main reasons why I set up the CAD Jewelry Skills blog in the first place was as a comparison of the different types of software. And I actually made a list. It's Frequently Asked Questions, page one, which focuses on just what software is good for what. Like, for example, if you do a lot of relief carving work, 
Carveco might be your best bet, the, the successor of ArtCam. Or if you do a lot of, say, as he's talking about like organic modeling without having necessarily do a lot of textural work, then something like Clayu would actually be more up your alley. But if you do like a lot of heavily textural work or a lot of heavily sculptural work, but you're not so much interested in measurements, then ZBrush is your, uh, is, is your ideal. That's all on that list there. And uh, it's just designed to sort of uh, save some time on some of the general comparisons because we're used to feeling these questions all the time. And also these computers, these programs sorry, are compatible with each other. So I know quite a lot of people who work, you know, in Matrix and then also bring in elements they made into ZBrush when you're detecting things stranger. And also I think people get a little bit bogged down in the hole because you've made it in CAD. You, you're not going to work in the workshop and you're not going to make it in the workshop, which isn't true at all. I mean, some of the best jewelers, I used to go and visit one of our apprentices down in Bath, Maitland, and he had two Russian guys who worked in the workshop. It was amazing. Some of the best jewelers I've ever seen in my life. And they would build things in CAD. They'd get their rapid prototype back, which is fundamentally a wax. They'd then add to the wax and start working into the wax. Then they'd send that away. They'd get that cast in elements. Then they'd bring those elements back. They'd still keep on working on those elements once they're in metal. Then they put it all together. Then they'd set it. So thinking as it's sort of CAD versus workshop is a complete misnomer. It's, it's just another additional set of tools you bring into you, but you should work on something at every stage of the process. You work in a CAD, work in it actually as a rapid prototype, which I've done many times in the past. And then when you get the pieces cast into metal, work on the workshop. It's just, you know, if you're really good, you actually evolve at every stage of the process. Would you agree that this is an ideal time for anyone listening to use this opportunity to take a look at computer-aided design softwares and how they, or, or knowing them, could improve and benefit their businesses and whether they would enjoy incorporating digital technologies when we actually return to normal? One of my favorite expressions I like to tell students about this when they're asking exactly this question, whether whether that should go into CAD or handmade, is good CAD work is a bit like working with cosmetics. If it's done right, you can't tell how it's been done. You just notice that something is perfect and it's a combination of the best of both worlds. CAD is perfect tools working towards imperfection, whereas handmade is imperfect tools working towards perfection. And so it, it, it makes natural sense that there are gonna be some ways of doing things that are always gonna be more efficient by one way or the other. And any CAD designer who is uh, skilled enough and, and knowledgeable enough knows that you use the right tool for the right job. I think something else which is really interesting I've sort of noticed lately is there's kind of a rise of what I call anti-CAD, whereas not people who are against CAD necessarily, but in the same way, as soon as you get photography coming into, you know, into um, portraiture, as soon as people start taking photographs, painting, people stop trying to make photorealistic paintings. They actually think, well, actually, you can take a photograph now, so you get impressions and happens. And I've actually noticed in the jewelry industry, you get an awful lot of stuff which is purposely made to look what's the word quite rough quite rustic and that sort of jewelry is all very organic but almost to the point of sort of being um i'm trying to think of the right word for it but like things like water casting and things like that people are casting things in quite sort of organic almost imperfect purposely imperfect ways because actually when you can make things perfectly in CAD, that becomes a a counter a counter way of designing but it's like anything, you just choose what works for you and it's, it's tools for jobs. You just, you know, if I'm gonna make something, I would sit down and think, well, I could make this in CAD, I could make it out of metal or I could make it in wax. And, you know, 
I have my preference towards CAD. My second preference is always to make it in wax. My third preference is to make it in metal. But depending on the job, I can quite happy to jump from one to the other, depending on what needs to be done. Well, there's a tradition of that type of design going back a long time in uh, certain particular cultures and eras of design. The Japanese concept of wabi-sabi very much relates to exactly that. It's the, inter it's the intentional introduction or, or allowance of nature and imperfection to enter into a piece to actually breathe life into the form and actually and add an element of grace to the design that would otherwise be absent from just making it too perfect. The very concept of, mod of materials actually taking their own route, you know, design is always material led, but I think there's a sort of movement now towards actually letting the materials take the lead to the extent where actually you're almost losing control of what they're doing, which has some very interesting results. But again, I think that if you start building those elements in with CAD elements, then you start making really interesting things. I have one final question. Stephen has already told us that he is very busy during lockdown. Jack, how's life in lockdown for you going? You have a small girl, I believe? Yeah, no, I, I, my, my wife and I have had to get to do a, effectively a crash course in, uh, in, like, in preschool, preschool learning over the past few weeks here. And that's been very interesting to see how we've had to adapt and evolve on that. Um, Stephen, have you had any challenges to overcome whilst you were in lockdown? Well, our, our workshop is in our shed. We have like a very large shed which has a workshop in it and that's the roof's fallen off and the doorstep fell apart. So I've been mainly mending the shed, but because I can't go to buy any materials, I'm pretty much having to use what I can find to, uh, to make do, which is good. That's another learning curve. It's all a learning curve. I agree. Perhaps the best approach to see this period is as a creative challenge, as an opportunity to reflect, and as, you know, a time for us to review and reimagine what we can do with the restrictions imposed upon us, and also how they could improve the period that comes after this lockdown. Okay, at this point, I would like to say a big thank you to both Jack and Stephen for their time and insights. I think the topic we touched upon today is vast and holds many opportunities for jewelers in lockdown. I therefore would like to invite Jack and Stephen to join me again later on in the series. But for now, I would like to wish you both well, stay safe, keep busy. Next week, I'll be inviting another guest, but watch this space to find out who it is. For now, this was Sophie Boons on the first BAJ Lockdown podcast titled Working Away From Home, Continuing Your Jewelry Practice Virtually with a Broken Supply Chain in conversation with Stephen Barnett and Jack Meyer. I wish you a good week and thank you for listening.